This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I'm sure you heard, you read, you watched, you caught up today on the story of Kareem Baratov. Uh, you, you heard it yesterday that he was arrested by Toronto police, handed over to the RCMP, who it appears may give him to the FBI. As part of a massive, the allegations are part of a massive hacking scheme that hacked into 500 million Yahoo accounts. Now, some of you, and I said this yesterday, and boy, the comments I got today almost exclusively referred to what I'm going to tell you next, because I said it last night, and everyone suddenly went, oh, yeah, I know that. You probably had no idea who this guy was, but many, many, many people, if you ever drove up into the Ancaster area, especially if you were up by the chapters, you may have seen a powder blue Lamborghini driving around that had the License plates, Mr. Kareem. That was the guy. And everybody who was up in that area noticed that. I heard more people today say, oh, that guy. Yeah, that was the one. That's that's the guy who we're talking about here. Anyway, I'm reading all this today. I'm following up on all this. I'm trying to get all this, you know, trying to understand everything that's happening. And as I'm online today, here are some of the, besides what I saw with this, here are some of the other headlines that I saw today online. Hack attack snagging cell phone data across DC. Private pictures and video of Emma Watson leaked. Amanda Seyfried is the latest star to suffer a nude photo leak. Teen quiz app Wishbone hacked. Colorado Springs Fire Department Twitter account hacked. McDonald's targets Trump on Twitter. Company says it was hacked. And I guarantee you that I've missed some of the other things that were on today about the internet and hacking. From all this and what happened yesterday, I can draw only one conclusion. And that is that if I'm online, I should assume that I'm vulnerable. I should assume that what I'm doing online could be tapped into by somebody somewhere along the way. That is the assumption I'm going to make. Well, helping me to try and sort this all out today, Alan Mendelson is a lawyer who specializes in internet law, working out of Montreal. We've had him on before. He's a terrific guest. He knows his stuff. Uh, He joins us now. Alan, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, thanks so much for the kind words, Scott, and thanks for having me on. So if I am online and I come to the conclusion from looking at all these headlines and hearing all these stories and hearing about this arrest yesterday of 500 million uh, accounts, would I be accurate in saying that I'm probably vulnerable or am I just being completely paranoid? Well, a little from column A, a little from column B, maybe. Uh, no, but you'd be 100% accurate, in all honesty. Um, you know, maybe paranoia is a little bit strong in that it depends what you're doing online. And it depends what sort of information you're sharing online. And it depends how you're sharing that information. So while absolutely everybody is vulnerable, I'm vulnerable, and I take security measures, you know, that are pretty strict given what I know. But even I recognize that I'm vulnerable. But I know not to do certain things that would, you know, make my life a little bit easier. And I think people out there should know some of those things in order to, you know, be as safe as they possibly can. Well, some of those things I would think are probably pretty obvious. And yet we had 500 million accounts. They couldn't (laughs) all have been looking at barnyard porn. (laughs) No, you're, you're certainly right. Now, you know, we put our trust into some of these large corporations, Yahoo, Google, you know, Microsoft, that they're going to have the best security that they possibly can. Um, You know, so it's almost required from us because I don't think that, you know, 500 million Yahoo accounts were hacked based on weak passwords, for example. You know, and I think that's the what I tell everyone who asks me about security, well, your passwords are terrible. And they're like, well, they, oh, my password says this and that. And no, no, that's terrible. So, you know, that's the one thing you can do, for example, and there's other things you can do. But yes, we entrust our data to these large corporations. And, you know, Yahoo is a giant corporation. And if they're not up to the task, well, you know, who could be? But yet we still, as you say, we still do believe that we are safe. And maybe it's not, 
maybe, Alan, it's not that we believe we're safe. Maybe we have just set aside our doubts or whatever. If I want to go online, I just want to believe that I'm okay, and I'm not going to put too much thought into it. Right. Well, you know, and, and that's the other thing. Everyone lives their lives online these days, and you have to come to the realization that we're all going to live with a certain vulnerability. You know, we all lived with a certain vulnerability in the pre-online world. You know, people always ask me, you know, should I enter my credit card online when I buy something at Amazon? And I'm like, of course you can. And they're like, well, can't my credit card be stolen? I'm like, remember 20 years ago when you went out to a restaurant and you handed your credit card to the waiter who took that credit card back to the cash to run it across that little machine? Yeah, that chunk chunk chunk. Exactly. <laughs> You know, you were just as vulnerable, if not more so, back then All right. someone was taking your credit card away than you are when you enter your credit card at Amazon. So, you know, I, I think we've all, and, and certainly I have, I mean, I shop online all the time. I enter my credit card on, online all the time, but at reputable retailers, you know, I, I think we've all recognized a certain level of, well, this is the way it is, but we're going to have to accept that level of risk because online makes our lives simpler and we want that. Right. And who was it? Which was the big, big company that several months ago, all their uh, credit card information got hacked and, and, you know, it was around Christmas time, wasn't it? You know who I'm talking about? I mean, I can't even remember now. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's, yeah, been, yeah, there's been a there, lot. There's been a few. It's hard for me to keep track. All right. So you, you are a lawyer who specializes in this. And now my my instinct, and I am not a lawyer in this, so my instinct is to say any hacking whatsoever must be illegal. Anyone who tries to tap into my information, however they try to do it, there must be laws that say that that is absolutely against the law. Is that correct? Oh, there's no question. There's no question. It's 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 theft, pure and simple, even though, you know, sometimes, as I always say, the law is always about five or 10 years behind the technology. You know, prosecutors and and police, they apply traditional laws to online circumstances all the time. And theft is theft, you know, of a valuable piece of information. It's still theft. It's fraud. In this case, they were using credit card, you know, in the Yahoo case, they were using credit card numbers and uh, gift card numbers fraudulently. So, I mean, there's fraud on the books. The issue becomes, you know, more from an individual's perspective is in the civil law sphere. If, you know, Yahoo, if I trusted Yahoo with certain information and my information got stolen from Yahoo, fine, the person who stole the information from Yahoo is guilty of a criminal offense. But can I sue Yahoo in civil court meaning that I claim damages that are Yahoo's responsibility. And that tends to be the, the, the trickier situation. And we need to find a way to hold the large corporations accountable for their own data leaks. With the corporations, here's one of the ones that a lot of people, and I, I talked to a few people today, and there is a lot of confusion around this. And, and I don't even know the answer exactly. I belong, I subscribe to get my internet through an internet provider, whether it's Bell or Kojiko or Shaw or whomever. Can the folks there who provide my internet look at what I'm looking at online or stuff that I'm doing online? No, no. I, I, I think that's pretty clear. They cannot, I mean, they could technically do it, but they would not do it without a court order. And there are any number of circumstances where a court might order um, you know, your internet service provider to provide certain information to the authorities, but there are real legal safeguards in place before that happens. But how do so I, I know? How do I know they're not? Well, I, I, I <laughs> you know... It's you trust, know. right? It's trust. Yeah, of course, there's trust, there's trust. Look, and, and I think we could all agree that if somehow it came out Let's pick the, the largest company we can, Bell or Rogers. You know, if it came out that Bell was somehow doing nefarious things with, you know, the information that was av- made available through their own customers, that would be the end of Bell. I mean, everyone would run screaming to the hills from Bell. There'd be government commissions and inquiries one after the other after the other. It is not in Bell's business interest to do something like that. So, you know, that's, you know, I, I think I, I personally 
I don't trust large corporations generally, but I trust large corporations to do what's in their best business interest. And spying on their own customers is not in their best business interest. How much are we to blame for this? And let me go back to the idea because we had an expert on last night who was talking about how exactly, if it happened, if it happened as the authorities are saying, how Kareem um, and these and Baratov and these other people were able to hack in. And one of the ways is, you know, they may have sent emails and someone looks at it and goes, oh, it's a funny little cat. I'll click on that one. And we don't, I don't think, Alan, a lot of the time, we are not really careful with our information. How, how much are, even though there may be hackers and horrible people out there who are trying to get our information, how much of this is our own fault for not being careful? Look, a, a, a significant part. There's no question. Now, you know, in the average person's defense, these people are experts and they are quite clever. And I, who consider myself an expert in these matters, have even myself almost been tricked every now and then by an email that comes in. Now, I'm very careful. I don't click on anything, but I'm like, ooh, he did a very good job there. He got an email address that really looks like it came from Google or really looks like it came from PayPal. And they've got the PayPal logo in there. And yes, they're saying something wrong with my PayPal account. And I used PayPal yesterday and there was a charge. Maybe something was wrong with that. So, and I have to think for five or 10 seconds, And I, again, I'm quite knowledgeable in these matters. The average person, you know, up against a really clever hacker or fisher probably doesn't stand much of a chance, unfortunately. So how many, how many Nigerian princes have you responded to? (laughs) You know, I, I, the hackers, (laughs) the hackers are clever enough now not to use Nigerian princes princes anymore. They know better. I'm sure that was successful (laughs) for a while though. Exactly. Now here's the trouble though. We only have a couple minutes. Here's the difficulty with all this. So we have the laws and you've outlined that it's completely illegal in almost, I would guess, or every circumstance. So people can do this, they can get charged, they can pay fines, they can go to jail, they can do whatever. But as much as that might be comforting in some sense, if they get in and are able to hack into certain things in our computer, and there are, we, I read a list of some pictures, some, some delicate things that could end up out online or in the internet. Yeah, you know, fine, they get charged and stuff, but this is, that stuff doesn't go away. You're not really cleaning up the problem. This can become a problem that doesn't really go away, even though the law has dealt with it. Oh, there's no question. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, what goes out on the Internet is there forever, whether it's on your own personal computer or, you know, generally the, the hacks that you're talking about, the, the photographs that came out of the, of the famous women uh, that came, I heard you mention before, you know, that stuff was undoubtedly backed up on the cloud somewhere and that's an easier access point for hackers but even if you know you never back up anything on the cloud and you only keep things on your own computer your home computer is connected to the internet all the time Mm -hmm. if someone is really clever they'll have no problem getting in there so you know there's no question that where every phone every computer every you know internet connected device is connected to the internet 24 hours a day um, you know, we've, we've come to the point where it's become a very tricky situation, obviously. So what do you do? I mean, you're, you're a guy because you know the law, because you're involved, you would be, I would think one of the more careful people. What do you do to try and make sure you don't get hacked? You know, the, well, I, I almost admit that I could get hacked. That's, you know, that's sort of realizing that that is a possibility is in a sense half the battle. So if you realize that you may get hacked, do smart things so that if you are hacked, nothing necessarily bad could come to you. So don't put personal, intimate photos of yourself in the cloud anywhere. Never send your credit card number through an email. Do things that are smart online and even if you get hacked, hopefully the damage won't be so bad. Hopefully it is just pictures of kittens. <laughs> we could always use more pictures of kittens. <laughs> Alan Mendelson, uh, internet lawyer, uh, really appreciate the time. Always great. Appreciate you doing this. Scott, my pleasure as always. Have a great night. You as well. It, it's very, very tricky because Alan is absolutely right. We are all, almost all of us, maybe there's somebody out there listening now. You know, I've said this before. 
When I first started doing this show, we did something about rotary dial telephones. And I said, there's nobody out there who has a rotary dial telephone anymore. And suddenly three or four people called in and said, I still do. So what I'm about to say, I know there's probably one or two, but it seems as though almost nobody could survive in the modern world, not hooked into the internet somehow, some way. I would be shocked. And sure, why not? If you're one of these people, give me a call, let me know, or send me an email. Haha, see, tricked you there because you couldn't send an email if you were not hooked in. Um, but if you are one of the people who has no connection whatsoever to the internet, boy, oh boy, are you ever in the minority. I can't think that there probably are more or too many people out there who have no connection anymore to online. We have to. You almost have to now. Who doesn't have an email account? Who doesn't go online for any particular purpose? It's just incredibly difficult. And as long as you're online, and Alan's correct, most of us, our computers are on all the time, our phones, our smartphones, whatever, it's possible to be hacked. And that's, that's, that's frightening. It really is. When you consider some of the stuff that is on your computer or in your system or in emails or whatever else, none of us want to have, none of us want to be spied on. None of us want to be having someone peering essentially through the window, but that's the reality now. That's the reality. And if 500 million people from Yahoo, from Yahoo can get hacked, you can get hacked. I can get hacked. We all can get hacked. That's not comforting. That's not even a little bit comforting, but that's our world. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There are, as I have learned through having a relative who has diabetes, there are a lot of people out there who deal with this. This is a, you know, we, we know that there are a lot of people who are dealing with obesity and dealing with other things, which some of the spinoffs can be diabetes. This is a big, big problem. It's a drain on our health care. It's a difficult life for some people to lead. So anytime you can get some good news about something that may be making things better for somebody with diabetes, it's a good thing to bring on and to talk about. There's a study out of McMaster today that does just that. This study, and we're going to hear about it from the lead researcher on this one, but as I understand it, this, what you're about to hear, I think, should offer an awful lot of hope because it is giving some encouraging news to people who are suffering from type 2 diabetes, which again, many of you or people you know are living with, that this is possible not just to reduce your diabetes, your symptoms, your effects of diabetes, but possibly to turn it right around and and put it into remission within four months. Dr. Herzl Gerstein is the Director of Endocrinology and Metabolism and the Director of the Diabetes Care and Research Program at McMaster University and Hamilton Health Sciences. He joins me now. Dr. Gerstein, thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you, Scott. Just before we get going, to set this up, because I sort of said that there's a lot of people who deal with this. How common these days is type 2 diabetes? So you're, you're totally right. There are very many people, but one in 10 adults um, in Ontario and indeed in Canada and many countries around the world currently have type 2 diabetes. And that's people, one in 10 people over the age of 20. And in older people, um, the frequency is even more common. So it is a big problem. And that is a number that is going up, correct? Because of our sedentary lifestyle and other things, this is, this is a rising problem? Well, we're not sure why it's going up, but it is going up. Um, it, uh, um, it's going up because the population is aging um, and a whole bunch of other reasons. Yeah. Okay, so a di- a, if I were to get a diagnosis, and I want to get to the study in just a second, but if I was to get a sure. diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, for those who don't have it, what does that actually mean? Well, strictly speaking, a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes just means that you're uh, sugar level, your glucose level, is above a certain level. So once your glucose level um, first thing in the morning is greater than uh, 6.1, then you have, um, uh, actually, once it's greater than 7.0, then you officially have a diagnosis of diabetes. That is um, uh, essentially what the diagnosis is. Um, the um, uh, um, 
uh, question is how are you going to feel? And many people, in fact, don't know that they have diabetes. So they may feel uh, fine or they might start feeling unwell, often feeling, feeling tired and unwell and uh, um, uh, may have headaches and malaise. So there's a number of nonspecific symptoms that people can have. And sometimes it can even be the first time you find out is when they're in hospital for some other reason. And the doctor does a blood test and says, yes, you have diabetes. And okay. And for, again, for those who don't quite understand this, but we hear it all the time, why would that be bad? Why would having a high glucose level be bad for you? Well, because once your blood sugar or glucose level is above a certain range um, and you have this diagnosis of diabetes, you are first uh, more likely to get problems with feeling unwell, tiredness, etc. But more importantly, it puts you, it identifies you as being at high risk of many serious future problems down the line, including eye disease and kidney disease and heart disease and and strokes and and a whole host of other diseases. So diabetes is like a time bomb that increases your risk of future things later on in life. Okay, and to cause this to happen, the reason that your blood sugar, your glucose has gone up, what exactly has gone awry? What's broken essentially in your body that would cause this? That's a great question. We don't know why. Um, We know that this is extremely common. We know it's gotten more common over the last 20 years or or so. There's many theories as to why it happens. But at the very basic level, it's because your pancreas, your body's pancreas, which makes insulin, is not able to make enough insulin to control the blood sugar. And that is essentially, in a nutshell, why it happens. That's the mechanism. But why does the pancreas not able to make enough? There's a lot of theories and... um, uh, um, uh, and they range from something damaging the pancreas to it not being able to deal with all the work that it has to do in our modern society. We don't really know the answer to that question. Now, is this a disease or is it a condition? There's, it's a, that's, a, unfortunately, that's a semantic distinction. There's, okay, it, it okay. It is a disease. It is a disease. It's um, recognized universally throughout the whole world as a disease, and um, and. It actually, because in your, in your introduction, you made the point very well that dealing with diabetes, the disease, and all of the consequences of diabetes is a huge drain on individuals. People live with diabetes every day of their life, and, and, and they don't feel as well, and they're suffering, and they have to take medications to prevent future problems down the line and to control their sugar levels. And it, it also costs patients and society a lot of money because of the, of the consequences of the problem. And this was for a long time, maybe still is for some people, it's considered a life sentence or was considered a life sentence. Well, the, the good news is that with modern therapies and approaches, people with diabetes can live fairly normal life. And, um, and we have a lot of good, novel ways to treat diabetes today, and uh, they work. And uh, there's a, a very dedicated team of healthcare professionals around the country, and certainly in Hamilton, who... Um, Uh, are able to uh, help people manage their disease and and really do very well. So that is the good news. The bad news is if people ignore their disease and if they don't do anything to try to help their disease and deal with it, then there can be um, uh, worse consequences down the line. And that's what I was saying. And I want to get to your study because it's offering, I guess, some hope against this. But when I said a life sentence, you you will have to do things over the course of your life to remain healthy. You can't just say, oh, okay, fine. You're going to have the finger pricks and the insulin shots and the exactly. needles and all. You're going to have to do something for the rest of your life. Well, in the sense that the current way of thinking of diabetes today is exactly what you said, is that once you have the diagnosis, you are considered to have the diagnosis for life. And in fact, that's what happens. It doesn't um, the, way our, the way we currently understand the disease, it doesn't go away or disappear. But the uh, issue is um, that's what people believe, but it may not be true. So let's and, get to your study, because that's where some of this good news comes from. Um, yep. Your study has found that with a... Well, you explain your study and what you found. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the floor. You say it. So let I think that the most important word that you said in the introduction, and you said a few times in this discussion, is the word hope. So, as I said, the current way of thinking of diabetes around the world is that once you have it, you have it forever, and that it does get progressively worse with time. Um, But it may not necessarily be true, and there are now examples of therapies that do make diabetes go away or at least go into remission. So we've known now for several years that people who have um, uh, surgery um, for obesity, bariatric surgery, that if they have diabetes, the diabetes can go away. 
So, and it can go away for a while, and sometimes a long while. So what we're asking, and this is a research question, we don't know the answer yet, but we're asking is, is it possible if somebody um, has diabetes, is it possible to use a therapy and use it very intensively and use it for a limited period of time, and we're talking about two, three, four months' time, and then stop the therapy, and as a result of that therapy, can the patient's diabetes go from being there to being in remission? And that is what we are studying in, in this research program. The study that uh, you're referring to was called was what, was what we call a pilot study. So what this was, this was a study to see if this approach that I just discussed with you is feasible, if there's a chance that it could work. And what we found when we did this pilot study, this, this, this sort of exploratory study in 83 people in Hamilton, we found that indeed patients are willing to be involved in the study, they're able to follow the protocol that, that this entails, and it looks like in some cases, it may work, and in some cases, there may be a remission, which means in some cases, they may no longer need to take diabetes medications and their blood sugars stay normal. We don't know how long it works for, and we don't know um, uh, exactly what percentage of people it works in. But what we found in this study, in this pilot study, is that this is an approach definitely worth exploring. And if the future studies, and we are currently now running in Hamilton and in, around, in, in, in Canada, actually, we're currently running three um, follow-up studies for this to test this in a more um, rigorous way. And if we can show that this is something that uh, we can reproduce, that it is maintained, then we may be able to say that in some percentage of people, maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, we don't know, that there may be a possibility to reverse the disease at least for a while. And in some people, it might be three months. and some people, it might be three years or maybe even forever. So we don't know. When you're, doing that, this, when you're doing this study then, what were the kinds of things that you changed within a person's lifestyle that was able to create these circumstances that might cause well, it to go into remission? What did the, you do? In this pilot study, yeah, what we did was we, we took a, um, in this pilot study, we took either a two or a four month period of time. And during those those, that period of time, we um, did five things. So we um, uh, did a lot of counseling and support for patients to increase their physical activity level, and we had a lot of intense interactions with the patient to help them with their dietary changes, and we also started three different drugs. And these three drugs are used to treat diabetes, and so we used them. Um, these, all the patients in the study had diabetes for at least three years or, or, or for up to three or four years. And so, up to three years, actually. And then we, we said, okay, if we use these drugs in a very intense way along with diet and exercise, and then at the end of up to four months, we stop the drugs, can the drugs stay off? Can people not be on drugs and still maintain normal blood sugar levels? And... A few people, more people in the treatment group than in the control group, indeed were able to do so. I want to stress to you and to your listeners that this is not a cure and this is not a proven fact right now. What I'm telling you is that this study shows that this might be possible and this shows that there's a lot of smoke in this hypothesis and this idea and now we want to find the fire. In other words, we want to do it in a more systematic way to really see was this a real effect that we found? We told the world about it in the paper. Now we want to say, okay, can we reproduce it and we, with, with, with drugs like the ones that we used and with this diet and physical activity program? And I should say, if, if there are people in Hamilton who are interested in participating in, um, uh, in some of these studies that are, that are going on right now like this, the, the number to call is um, extension 22205 at... Uh, um, at, at McMaster, so 521-2100, extension 22205. Um, uh, and they may be, they can talk to the research assistant and perhaps uh, they may be able to participate. But that is really where we are right now. We want to advance what we've already think we found, and this is very promising, but it's not the answer yet. So I would not go out and say, yes, they found it, no, but maybe we're on the, on the, on the uh, trail of something important.
One of your colleagues who was involved as well, uh, Dr. Natalia McInnes, who was speaking to a few papers, she made an interesting quote, and I'd like to ask about this because it sounds as though, I I wanted to say what is changing in the body, and she may have thrown it out here. Her quote is, this likely, all that you've talked about with the drugs and the exercise and everything else, this likely gives the pancreas a rest and decreases fat stores in the body, which in turn improve insulin production and effectiveness. So... Does that mean that the theory or at least the hypothesis is or may be that in diabetes, it's this may be a crazy way of me asking this, but that your pancreas is overexerted itself and if we can give it some time off, it may be able to recover? You know, Scott, I think that in a nutshell, that's, that's part of the underlying idea right here and that's exactly it. And what we're, what we're doing here, because what happens, interesting, when you, when you diet, when you are more physically active, and when we use the drugs that we are using in this, in this study, what we're doing is we're giving the pancreas a break. It's like we're saying, you take a rest now, you know, we're going to require you to make less insulin because you'll need less insulin because you're, you're, you're dieting, you're physically active, and these drugs that we're giving you are reducing your need to make insulin. And when that happens, perhaps that the pancreas can recover some of its own ability to make insulin um, uh, after we stop the drugs on its own. And that is, at this point, in a very simple way, the, the way to think about what we're trying. And many doctors, interestingly enough, over the last 20, 30 years have, have thought about this and people have done this um, in an uncontrolled, unsystematic fashion. And so what we're saying is, let's do it systematically. Let's really study it. And if this works, then let's say, well, maybe we should add another drug for two weeks that'll do something, or a month here or there. We can put together the cocktail that can really, um, hopefully, improve the, the rates of remission. But right now, it's early days, and we are starting down this path. We have this pilot study, and we want to now explore this path because it may be very fruitful and yield a lot of benefit for patients. If you have diabetes and it could go away, then I think that's worth exploring whether we can make that happen. We have less than a minute left, but I want to go to an email that just came in from someone. Now, this is going to be a much deeper baseball here. This is someone who clearly has dealt with diabetes because they're talking in language that I may not have uh, caught on. But for those who have it, they'll probably understand this question. They say, we've known for years that diet and exercise is the answer for type 2 diabetes. We have oral hypoglycemics already. What's the difference with the drugs they're using in the trial now? These drugs... The drugs that we're using in the trial are already approved for treating diabetes. What we're doing with these drugs now, along with diet and exercise, is we are using them in a very intensive way. We are actually um, uh, using a high enough dose to make the person's blood sugar perfectly normal. And we, often what happens the old way or the traditional way of treating diabetes is use one drug and once it no longer works, add another drug. And once it no longer works, add another drug or add two together, three together. We're taking a different approach. We're saying, let's use a whole bunch all together at once and really normalize things. And then, along with diet and exercise, and then after a period of normalization and, and uh, um, if you like, your word you use, resting the, the body's pancreas, stop them and see what the pancreas can do afterwards and, and see how many people are able to manufacture enough insulin on their own to keep their sugars normal. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, Dr. Herzl Gerstein, the Director of Diabetes Care and Research Program at McMaster University. Once again, the number, if you are someone who has diabetes and maybe wants to be part of this and uh, be a guinea pig for this uh, this program, 521-2100, extension 22205. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, there are probably many people out there who would not mind taking a stab at being part of this project and seeing if maybe it can work for you as well. Because I, you know, I don't have diabetes, but knowing people who do with the finger pricks and the needles and everything else, I could not imagine anything I would want more than to be able to live without all that stuff. Can't imagine anything I would want more than not to have to do that day after day after day after day. 521-2100, extension 22205, if you're interested. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now, we touched on this topic last night and didn't really get much uh, as much time as we would have liked. And it's a very complicated one. It's a very unique one. It is a very difficult one to walk through without getting yourself into areas of political correctness and all kinds of other things that are 
difficult because it is a, it's a topic that some people are turning into a very black and white, very cut and dried, very simple issue. It's men versus women. It's this versus that. I think, I honestly believe that there is some part of it that is that, but it is a lot more nuanced and a little more complicated than some, some are making it sound. The story is, of course, and, and you've probably heard this over the last couple of days, even if you weren't listening last night, you've probably heard something about this. The U.S. women's national hockey team is hosting the world championships in, where are they hosting them? I can't even remember now where they're hosting them. Um, Plymouth, Michigan. In Plymouth, Michigan. Thank you. At the end of this month, May, March 31st, I believe is the opening date. But they're saying, no, you know what? We are not getting proper funding for our team. We're not getting equitable funding for our team. We're not earning a living wage from this. And therefore, we are going to boycott the World Championships. We are Our team is not going to show up for the World Championships until USA Hockey decides it's going to start putting its money where its mouth is. And this has been, as you know, a very successful team. The Canadian women, by and large, have won the Olympics. I think they've won all but one of the Olympic gold medals. I think the very first Olympic gold medal that women were in went to the States and every other one has been to Canada, but the women in the States have won. The Americans women have won many of the world championships. So they don't want to play until they get equitable and better funding. Is this cut and dry, super easy? Well, I want to bring in someone here who's a, uh, a longtime guest of the show, one of our favorite people to have on here. Uh, Chris Elkovich is a longtime sports writer, guy who's seen everything in the world of sports. He's also been a longtime sports TV and sports media critic, just back from the lovely temperatures of Mexico. So, he's, so we may have to ease him back into the world of hockey here. But uh, Chris, thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, uh, anytime, uh, Would you? Okay, let's start at the very beginning. I, I, can we agree, and I think we probably can, that there is no reason that men's and women's national teams and the players on men's and women's national teams should not receive the same level of funding. I think that most people would agree with that, right? Yeah, I think no, most I, people could come to that agreement. Yeah, no, I think it would be uh, pretty hard to uh, to argue that one deserves more than the other. Uh, and, and I think for the most part, that's usually the way it works out. Right. So, so whatever. Now, it's not always. And if no. and it's and here's the here's the difficulty of this story as we start getting into it. Every single story, every version of the story you read has a slightly different bit of information. I got to tell you, I've never seen a story more confusing than this one, because there are some that say that the funding for the men is much higher than the women. There are some that say it's equal. There's, it's all over the place. But as a baseline. I think we can probably agree that the men and the women's national team should get the same amount of money and the players should get the same amount of money. So if there's a disparity, that should be fixed. Right. The challenge comes when we move past that into the rest of the sport. And here's, Chris, here's where, and the reason I wanted to have you on as opposed to anyone else about this, because it ties a lot into viewership and into TV and into media and fans and all the rest. I looked at Sportsnet's schedule this week. The the university, Canadian University Hockey Championships are going on this week across the country. The men's university semifinals and final are being shown. The women's are not. Why? Well, not a whole lot of people are going to watch the men's, but nobody's going to watch the women's. (laughs) And, you know, it's just just a fact of life. Uh, You know, it just does not draw the same... The same interest, um, you know, whether it's perception that the caliber isn't as high, um, or yeah, and there is, uh, you know, there is a dichotomy here, or, or, or let me say a better word would be, uh, uh, you know, uh, a bit of unfairness. And I, and I use as a perfect example, or not a perfect, I use an example, golf. The P, the LPGA puts on as many exciting tournaments as the PGA does, and yet. Try to find an LPGA tournament. You know, with the exception of a couple of majors, you very rarely ever see them on on the main networks. And the reason is is that nobody is interested in watching them. You know, you could make the the argument about the chicken and the egg. If the women got more exposure, more people would become interested. But uh, you know, last year, for example, uh, Brooke Henderson was um, in the uh, the Canadian Women's Open and it, it drew flies. I mean, despite the fact that we had a star and a star who was a contender, nobody watches. Um, and I think there is a bit of a bias there. I think your average 
sports fan is is a male, and they just don't seem to have as much interest in it. Is there an obligation in your mind on sports networks to say, okay, forget ratings. You know what? For In the end, interest of equity in building sport and everything else, uh, we should be showing equal, if we're going to show the men's university or the men's this or the men's that, we should also show the women's. Is, is there an obligation on networks to do that? I think there should be, particularly, maybe not so much in the, in the case of the LPGA since it's professional, but I think in the case of amateur sports, I think the net the networks in Canada and the United States should be pushing um, both men and women equally. Uh, you know, they're they're going to lose money on it, but you know they they haul in uh, you know millions and millions of dollars in cable fees and and uh, tax breaks they get from the government. So you know they and they are required to show Canadian programming, but I think you know they they should be required to to treat both sides equally and. If they put on the women's hockey, Canadian Women's University hockey final, and uh, eleven thousand people watch, well, next year maybe fifteen thousand watch or twenty thousand. You know that's how you uh, you 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 create interest. It's going to take time, um, and, you know. But I think at this point, uh, and well, actually not at this point. It's been it's ever ever been the case that they're just uh, they're not willing to uh, to invest that much. You know, across the board, I think. I mean, they already probably lose money on the the men's finals, so they figure they're going to lose a bundle on the women's, and so therefore they don't do it. Well, what I don't understand is that when TSN and Sportsnet both got their endless number of channels, because they don't just in the old days they had a channel. There yes, was Sportsnet right. and there was TSN. Now, I mean, there's it's like the uh, in the movie Dodgeball when they have ESPN, <laughs> the, Ocho. the Ocho. It's it's almost like that now. But there's so many channels, and I thought when CRTC gave their approval for this, I thought I recalled somewhere along the way that there was an obligation, or at least <laughs> they had come forward and said this will allow us yeah. to show much more, uh, you know. Um, uh, amateur and university and other kind of sports. Am I wrong? Was that not part of the pitch? Uh, you know, I don't remember specifically in that case, but I'll take you back to the early days of, of sports uh, broadcasting in Canada, at least cable sports broadcasting, when, when uh, you know, TSN and sports, well, Sportsnet, for example, made its pitch to be allowed on the air. And, and believe it or not, they actually had to uh, convince the CRTC that they should be allowed to broadcast. And one of the biggest uh, promises they made was, you know, what was going to be on this new channel? Well, Canadian University Sports. Um, Yeah, you know, that lasted a week. (laughs) And as soon as the numbers came in, they realized they'd lost money, you know, suddenly they lost interest. TSN, um, and I believe it was two years it lasted, even started a women's sports network called WTSN. Exactly, yep. Um, But, you know, it it, it really lost a bundle of money, and, and you know, it was probably an ill-fated gesture, uh, but you know, it was it was a noble gesture. Uh, they just didn't really stick with it long enough. But you know, who knows? Maybe you know that would have taken twenty years, and I guess they couldn't uh, they couldn't stomach the losses. But uh, Canadian University sports, uh, just getting away from the uh, the men women uh, angle, is probably the most promoted uh, sport when it comes to applying for licenses, and and in the end, the least served sport. Well, and here's where two guys are going to get themselves into something where some people are going to say we're being sexist. And I really don't believe we are, but just even discussing this is one of those things that gets into territory where some people bristle. And that's because, Chris, my question is, is there any obligation? When we watched the the Clarkson Cup finals, there weren't huge crowds for that. And I said last night on the show, if I go to a McMaster men's and women's basketball game or men's and women's volleyball game, and they're one right after the other. The crowd for the men's is always substantially bigger than for the women's. Is there any obligation on people, and by people I also mean women, who are arguing rightly that we should be giving more attention to women's sports, more money to women's sports, more energy to women's sports, that they should be backing that up by being in the seats and putting their wallets there as well and showing that there is actually interest in women's sports? Yeah, well, I think, uh, and I, you know, I remember writing this at the time. The the biggest uh, reason why WTSN failed was that eighty percent of sports fans are guys, and even if half those guys have you know have no interest in ever watching women's sports, then you, you know you've got a pretty small audience to deal with, and you know. It, Women's sports will bring women viewers, but not in the numbers that, that the male sports do. 
And, for example, uh, there are more women watching NHL hockey than are watching any, you know, the, the LPGA or, or any other women's sports. You know, women discriminate against the two. And, you know, it, it could be the perception that, uh, you know, we only want to watch the best, and the best are the men, and therefore women uh, have to take a back seat on this one. I don't know. But, Chris, there's, I mean, and again, this came up last night. For those who are listening, some of this is going to sound a little repetitive. I understand that, but you can't get away from this. There are... How many how many girls and I and I'm not being sexist by saying girls instead of women. How many girls are playing youth soccer right now? How many girls are playing youth hockey right now? And you say they clearly must love the women's version of their sports. They are playing it. Why are they not dragging mom or dad or both to some of these games? And we see it occasionally. We see it sporadically when they had the women's World Cup, the women's soccer World Cup. We saw very big crowds for those special occasion kind of things, but we don't see it on a consistent basis. No, and I think that's you know that's the it's not even a man woman thing as it is. It's kind of the curse of the uh, of the Olympics and the World Championships, where we all become big luge fans for two <laughs> weeks every couple of winters, and then you know, and then don't care about the sport. And and you know, with the women's soccer team, for example, I mean, you know, which at this point would be outdrawing the men's soccer team, like absolutely, to yep. one. Yep. Uh, but again, yeah, uh, take away the Olympics or take away the World Championships or the World Cup, rather, and suddenly there's no, there's no interest in it or there's very little interest in it. But if this had, if we were seeing crowds that we saw at those women's World Cup games, we had Tim Hortons Field here in Hamilton was sold out for an exhibition game against England, sold out for an exhibition game before the tournament, if we were seeing even fractions of those audiences at the Canadian Women's Hockey League games or at you know other hockey events, we wouldn't even be having this discussion or if we saw this down in the States because then you've got companies, sponsors, everyone else saying, well, we've got to get on board. We've got to pour money. USA Hockey would say, listen, we got to, we got to back this up. It, it wouldn't be this issue. There's got to be some kind of private sector blame, I guess, in this, as well as just the sports federation, I think, doesn't there? Yeah, well, I think, it, I think it probably runs pretty deep, and I think, uh, you know, that, that certainly is part of it. Now, I don't think, for example, the Canadian women's hockey team or the Canadian, the Canadian women's soccer teams, they're not, the national teams, are, are suffering in, in that respect. I think they do very well. It's just that they do very well once a year or once every four years, and the rest of the time, there just doesn't appear to be the interest. But again, that that's shared by you know similar men's sports too. So it's you know it's not necessarily a sexist thing. Well, yeah, and you know it's it's uh, my operator here, Luke. Last night when we were talking about this, said one other thing that I thought was really interesting is that you know when you're talking now about U.S. hockey or someone who is throwing money around, and they look at say Austin Matthews who has popped out of the U.S. men's system, they're seeing something really tangible and really big time that they have produced by putting money towards that program. And I'm not saying that you're not seeing this from women. You're getting lots of medals and you have big crowds on those particular days, but it's a much, it's a different thing that you're selling when you're promoting women's hockey versus men's hockey. The, the product that pops out the other end for men is someone who goes on to the NHL and talks about how great us hockey was for the women. They play on the national team for a few years and then disappear. Well, I think the the you know hockey is a special case. I I think the the IOC did not do women's hockey any favors uh, when it allowed hockey into the Olympics, um, whenever that was, fifteen years what ago. What do you mean? Well, it wasn't ready. There there I mean it's still not ready. There are two teams. There are two teams that win the gold or silver medal every year, right? Canada, and the United States, Sweden, and Finland might fluke it every once in a while. Once. It's happened once, I think. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And the same with the World Championships. And then after that, the drop-off from fourth to fifth is, is you know, just huge. Like, the sport wasn't, hadn't developed enough to, to get into the Olympics. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it when the IOC threw out um, softball a few years ago because not enough countries were playing and, and the... the um, the, the the variation in talent wasn't uh, what they expected. There was too you know there was too much drop off again between the third best team and the fifth best team. But you know 
women's hockey has somehow managed to stay in the Olympics, despite the fact that it's probably one of the least competitive sports that there is. So, I, you know, I, I, I don't think giving women's hockey that expo- that much exposure that early has really done the sport any good other than in Canada and the United States. You know, it's a, it's a very, very tough one. And again, I, I say this sincerely, that I appreciate you doing this because there are people, if you even discuss this, you will get criticized for discussing this because the belief is if they've said they're not getting enough money, they're not getting enough money and that's it, black and white. And I think there is part of that argument that is absolutely true. But I think it's a little more nuanced than that. And I think when you start saying, I th- see, Chris, and again, you can disagree, but I think when you can start to build your brain and say, look how many people are interested in our game, you must then help to fund us to keep building that. I think that makes an easier argument for them. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, you know, for example, the uh, one of the most exciting games ever at the Olympics, as far as hockey went, was the Canada-U.S. Uh, game from a few years back. Um, so, I mean, they, they can put on a heck of a show, and they can, you know, I, th- I think the audience for that game was exceeded only by the men's gold medal game. So, you know, it, it, there is interest, but the problem is there's interest when you're playing one team, and there's interest every four years. And that's not enough to sustain a sport. Chris Zelkovich, uh, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. All right, you're welcome. Uh, look, I, I want to go back to the very beginning of what we said. I don't know because the facts are so hazy in this whole thing. I don't know exactly whether U.S. hockey is spending dollar for dollar what they spend on men and women when it comes to national teams. That there should be no question about. There should be no dispute about that. Whatever they spend on the men's national team, they should be spending on the women's national team. And I think that it's impossible to make an argument against that, even when you talk about the idea that, well, one draws more fans than the other. This is a government-sponsored national team program. This is not a private enterprise. So as far as paying for equipment, paying for travel, paying for national team fees, paying for gold medal wins and all that kind of stuff, that part, that's easy. That should be dollar for dollar. If someone is asking for more than that in order to pay other wages, now we're into a much more difficult and much more complicated discussion. But if it's simply the case that, look, here's how much we've paid for the men's team, that much should be going towards the women's team. And I think we can all agree on that part. Because again, this is not a private industry. This is not a private enterprise. And I would say the exact same thing in here in Canada. Whatever we're paying on our men's national team, that amount should be spent on our women's national team. Beyond that, it becomes much more difficult to wade through. And I honestly can't tell you what the rest of it is beyond that. It's just too complicated right now because even the people involved aren't really doing a very good job, to be honest, of clarifying what those positions are and what those numbers are. But if, right at the beginning, if the women on the U.S. national team are not getting the same as the men, that's where things are wrong. That's where they should be fixed. If they are you got to make a case then if they are. If they're getting the same as the men, you've got to make a case why you should be getting more. And I would say that for men, for women, for different sports, for all kinds of things. It's not about gender. It's not about anything else. If you're getting equal and you want more than equal, and I don't know if they are, you have to make a case for that. If it's not, equal is the way it should be. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.